We're going to have some fun today. We're going to have some fun today. We're going to talk about laughter. We're going to talk about laughter. So I hope you're ready to think about laughter with me and hidden in a place you would not imagine in the conversation of Bo Rare, of Bo Rare. Friends, so we continue our discussion about the issue of separation. Bo Rare is the malacha of separating what we want from what we don't want. In the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, after the winnowing process separated kernels from their chaff, a pile of kernels would be left mixed with the debris. Borer was the process that separated the kernels from the rest of the debris. So traditionally, the rules surrounding this malacha require that we avoid sorting that which is mixed together. The practical applications are complex and multifaceted. One may, for example, move food that is already on a plate while eating, separating the different items and organizing them, since that's the process of eating normally, and eating normally is a fine enterprise. Um, and it's done for the purpose of eating food immediately, not for later. It seems that even subconsciously, our minds are programmed to separate the good from the bad or the desirable from the undesirable, and not vice versa. If one is to remove the undesirable, it should be removed along with some of the desirable to avoid the separation. For example, on Shabbat, traditionally, if someone is removing an undesirable portion from a bowl of soup, it should be taken out with a spoonful of the desirable broth and not alone so that it is um, not simply removing the undesirable. Now, Professor Robert Keegan Someone I studied with, a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a developmental psychologist, has commented on a veracity the verac about the important process of separation that manifests itself psychologically, particularly in adult development. This is a really important chart here. Keegan shows how one develops by moving the structure of one's knowing what can be seen as a subject 
to the content of one's knowing, what can be seen as object. It is through this separation process that one becomes able to hold what one feels and knows rather than be held by it. So Professor Bob Keegan, what he's saying here in developmental psychology is that you move the structure of your knowing into the content of one's knowing. You see those arrows he has there in column three? So for example, if, if, if I am held by something, if you critique that something, you're critiquing the core of me. Once I have moved it from subject to object, from the structure of my knowing to the content of my knowing, I now am holding it, right? When you critique it, it is something that I hold, but you're not critiquing the essence of me. So he moves through childhood in the first three orders. And then if you looked at fourth and fifth, interpersonal relationships, mutuality, move from the structure of one's knowing into the object where those interpersonal relationships and mutuality are then held in the self-authoring mind. And then in the next stage, self-authorship, identity, ideology, move from one's structure to from one subject to one's object. That's to say, if you critique my ideology, you're not critiquing the core of me. I'm not at threat because that's merely something I hold rather than something that holds me, right? And so now I can live in a dialectical space between ideologies. So for example, if I'm a conservative or a progressive and you critique that ideology, if I'm at this earlier stage of adult development, you're critiquing my essence, I am at threat in your critique, right? Or if you're critiquing Judaism, it's, it's my essence rather than something I hold, something I'm a part of, you are critiquing my essence essentially. So development, as he shows, moves from this um, uh, categorical perspective to a systemic and then a system of systems. See that chart, that, that diagram, that image in the bottom right, where there's the person in relationship dialectically to these various systems. So this process of separation in adult development, Keegan highlights, um, is crucial to moving um, the structure of one's knowing to the content of one's knowing. This separation process liberates the self, liberates the self. We can come back to this idea. This is also the tr true in regard to our emotions as, as they relate to injustice. In his new book, Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger, which delves into the subject of systemic injustice, Lama Rod Owens teaches about an approach that validates our anger, but also transcends it, another process of psychic separation that helps us grow. Let me read a quote from there, one second. Sorry about that. So he, he, there's a billion quotes to bring, but I'm gonna bring a James Baldwin quote that he brings from over there. And here's what it says. I can only tell you about yourself as much as I can face about myself. And this has happened to everyone who's tried to live. You can go through life for a long time thinking no one has ever suffered the way I've suffered. My God, my God. And then you realize you read something or you hear something and you realize that your suffering does not isolate you. Your suffering is your bridge. Many people have suffered before you. Many people are suffering around you and always will. And all you can do is bring, hopefully, a little light into that suffering. Enough light so that the person who is suffering can begin to comprehend his suffering and begin to live with it and begin to change it, change the situation. We don't change anything. All we can do is invest people with the morale to change it for themselves. So most studies of, most commonly studies of emotions are concerned with negative emotions, sadness, anger, and anxiety, for example. But here we're going to explore the experience of laughter, 
which is a universal experience found in all cultures. In an authentic experience of laughter, one steps away from an experience in order to play with it, to observe it, and to see it differently. Such is the experience of laughter that it has the power to reduce our adrenaline and decrease our stress. In other words, laughter is healthy for us. Non-human animals laugh too. Studies show that rats that are tickled to laughter during their juvenile stages are more likely to laugh in later stages of life. And chimpanzees, humanity's closest related cousins, laugh through inhaling and exhaling, while humans only laugh through exhaling. Think about our laughter. Ha, 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 ha. Think about a chimpanzee laughter. He, 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 he. In and out, inhaling and exhaling. Cognitive neuroscientist Sophie Scott a fellow at University College London, has commented about how laughter connects, creates bonds, and unites all of humanity. The contagion of laughter is more powerful with familiarity of person. But ultimately, laughing with someone else, laughing with someone else, or not doing so, is about separation, about who is in and who is out. It's related to feelings of exclusivity and is about affiliation. The ability to laugh with others depends on who or what is being laughed at. We laugh most frequently because we like being on the inside, she argues. Scott shows how we rarely laugh at a joke, but rather in order to connect with the other, sharing the laughter experience together. It's intentionally communicative and connective. It's often highly nuanced and indicates who is in the group and who is not in the group. It's about power. Who laughs at you? Who laughs with you and who does not? Most of childhood, at least maybe mine, can be consumed with these dynamics and how we navigate our relationship to laughter. Still, we know that cultures differ. In America, it's been shown that we don't tolerate laughter in different fre frequencies than, than the norm at work. In Japan, any laughter is considered inappropriate at work. Some cultures laugh at bad news. In traditional Christianity, great pains are taken to show that Jesus never laughed. He must be serious. It wouldn't be appropriate for the Messiah, for, for the embodiment of God, for such a figure to laugh. For Trump, laughter is a sign of weakness, reducing one's power and strength. So how does Jewish thought understand laughter? The most obvious case of biblical laughter, of course, is the teaching that our great patriarch, Yitzchak, is named for his mother's laughter. Interestingly enough, we can also learn from his half-brother Yishmael's laughter and the different reaction that laughter evokes in such a case. The rabbis of the Talmud consider laughter to be of considerable importance in both a positive and a negative sense. Thus, Rabbah, Rabbah teaches that one should open up learning experiences with a joke because laughter opens the soul to moral and spiritual imagination. And the Gemara tells that the prophet Eliyahu told Rav Broca of Hosea that two people made, who made a living by making other people laugh, called comedians, merited being included in the world to come. They got Olam Haba for being comedians. It says that in the Gemara of Tanit 22a. But the Talmud also warns of hololess, excessive merriment. The Talmud tells of a rabbinic discussion about God's predilection to laugh and to play with some rabbis describing how God sets aside a portion of each day for such activity, uh, Gemara Avodazara 3b. Consider this famous story of how the rabbis imagine God laughing. I think we have this on the screen. Said Rav Yirmiyahu that the Torah had already been given at Mount Sinai. This is a very, one of the most famous Gemaras. If anyone has learned any Gemara, this is like one of the five to 10 most commonly known, and quoted. 
had, uh, had been given at Mount Sinai. We pay no attention to a bat call, to a heavenly voice, because thou hast long since written it in the Torah at Mount Sinai after the majority one must incline. Okay? care about the word of God anymore. We care about majority rule. That's how the Talmudic process is going to move forward. Rav Natan met Eliyahu and asked him, what did the Akadosh Baruch Hu, what did the Holy One, blessed, blessed be God, do in that hour when Rav Yahu uttered this truth according to which a majority view on a legal question can outweigh the pronouncement of a heavenly voice? He laughed with joy. He replied saying, my, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. <laughs> and so the rabbis imagine God laughing at being defeated, basically human progress, that they don't need to be like children waiting for God to tell them what to do. They can actually create systems of justice and can discuss. And God laughs as a parent laughs when they see their child progress, right? Oh, my child doesn't need me anymore. They take a shower instead of a bath. My child's going off to college or they got a job. I, there's a laughter of joy, of a joy of separation. It's, it's actually interesting that God here is separating. Um, God is separating from humans in terms of dependency. And in that independence or interdependency rather than a pure dependency, God laughs at that separation, the joy, the joy of such, of such a progress of separation. In other cases, laughter can be shown to demonstrate one's foolish certainty. I think we have this quote to put up from the Tosefta. The Tosefta are the extra rabbinic quotes that weren't um, put into the Talmud, but are of the same era. If someone removes stones from the field and puts them into the public road and someone else came along and was injured by them, he's liable. Even though he, they have said it's tantamount to one who removes stones from what does not belong to him and puts them into an area where they does belong to him. A man once removed stones from his own field and put them in the public road. A pious man there argued with him saying, what are you taking these stones? from what is not yours and putting them into what belongs to you. The man laughed at him. After a while, the same man fell into poverty and sold his field and was walking along in that very place until he stumbled on the rocks he had earlier tossed out. The irony of, and the laughter there being used to point out the irony. He said, it was not for nothing that good man, that good man said to me, you are removing stones from what does not belong to you and putting them into what belongs to you. The tragic story and the role of laughter exposing the theological dilemma. Elsewhere, laughter and reactions to laughter is characterized as powerful, even violent. After the people laugh at Rach Lakish, he kills them all. Here's a joke about the non-athleticism of religious Jews. Rach Lakish, and this is just a side point. Rach Lakish is like a, a robber. He's a scoundrel. And then he does teshuvah. He becomes... Uh, he, he repents and, and uh, morally and spiritually aligns himself. And he tries to jump over the river. He used to always jump over and he falls into the river. And it says, ah, oh, if you've done tshuva, you can't make it over the river anymore. Now, of course, today there's plenty of, um, uh, of Jews who uh, identify as religious and also participate in exercise and, and, and athletic activity. Um, but it's an old joke about how the more religious you are, the more um, uh, non-athletic you are. In fact, in the Haredi community, I read recently that the, the rates of obesity were seven times higher in Israel in the, in the Haredi community. And that's, that's a more complex issue around uh, notions of public health and science and around uh, the value of leisure and, of, uh, um, and the importance of the body in, in comparison to the soul. That's a whole other conversation. But in some cases, the laughter is a true outlier. The laugher is not someone who bonds or unites or connects, but is an outlier. Consider this famous case from Rebbe Akiva. Our third quote to come up. 
When they reached Mount Scopus, they tore their clothes. When they reached the Temple Mount, they saw a jackal come out of the Holy of Holies. They began to cry, seeing the Chorban. And Rabbi Akiva laughed. They said to him, what are you laughing for? He said to them, why do you cry? They said to him, jackals now walk on the place of which it is written, and the stranger that comes near shall be put to death. Shall we not cry for the Chorban, the destruction of the base of Migdash? He said to them, that is why I laugh, for it's written, and I took unto me faithful witnesses to, to record. Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of, I don't know how you say that in English, Jeberechia. How do you, <laughs> is that how you say it? Okay. I don't know how to say it in English. What has Uriah to do with Zechariah? Uriah lived at the time of the, of the first temple and Zechariah at the time of the second temple. Rather, the verse linked the prophecy of Zechariah to the prophecy of Uriah. Regarding Uriah, it's written, therefore shall Zion, because of you, be plowed as a field. Regarding Zechariah, it's written, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of, of Yerushalayim. Until the prophecy of Uriah was fulfilled, I feared that the prophecy of Zechariah would, would not come to be. Now that the prophecy of Uriah has come to be, it is known that the prophecy, prophecy of Zechariah will come to be. They said to him in these words, Akiva, you have comforted us. Akiva, you have comforted us. So the, each of these long quotes, these Talmudic passages, we could spend a whole day on, and I hope we can return to. But he laughs here because he sees in destruction a new hope. He sees in loss an opportunity. He sees in tragedy a glory. He sees in moments of discomfort, a comfort to come. He sees in a prophecy, yet another prophecy. Rebbe Akiva laughs because he knows at your lowest point, you hopefully can't go much lower, right? Gamza Yavor. There is, there is a comfort in the actualization of our fear. You are so afraid your parent is about to die. You don't know, it takes months, it takes years. Finally, they die. There's a deep pain in their death. And yet for some, there can be a liberation in, that, in, that, in those coming weeks because of the, of the finality. There's a pain in the finality, right? But also the, 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 the chapter closing can open, can open a new chapter. Think about divorce as well. Think about closing a chapter and what happens when something can be finalized and a liberation that can come as well. This, this goes to our Talmud last, last week, actually. The, 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 the Talmud around um, how um, the, he says he doesn't want to come back to this world again, not because of the pain of death, but because of the fear of death. The fear of death is worse than the pain of death itself. We learn from medieval Jewish scholars of some of the challenges presented by laughter. Maimonides considered laughter to be potentially problematic. You're probably not surprised if you know any Rambam. He articulated his understanding that it's forbidden for judges to laugh when engaged in their serious work. Think of the judge. Think of the judge, the, the Av Bastin. And here's what, here's what Rambam writes. Every Jewish court, which is appropriate, has the divine presence with it. Therefore, the judges need to sit in awe and dread, enwrapped and with gravitas, and are forbidden from levity, laughter, or idle speech in the court. Rather, they should engage in Torah and in wisdom. And to be sure, I think there's something quite uh, noble about this. If you are a vulnerable uh, person in court and you saw judges uh, joking, uh, you might not feel that they're taking your case seriously. Ibn Ezra taught that the word for cruelty, achzar, comes from achzar, treating someone like a foreigner. Indeed, excluding and putting others on the outside through jokes can enable acts of dehumanization and cruelty. Many centuries later, the Hasidic master had much to say about laughter. The first of them, the Besh, the Baal Shem Tov, emphasized that by laughing, we grow emotionally and come to a greater state of devekis, of clinging to the divine, devekut. 
Rabbi, Nach, Rabbi Nachman built on the Baal Shem Tov's idea by telling of someone of diminished social stature who laughed at the world and considered it a place of play and thereby lived a true life filled with truth and brought great merit to the world. The Kutzka Rebbe also responded to the laughers. This is, what, this is probably the most famous quote of the Kutzka Rebbe. Where is the dwelling of God? This was the question with which the rabbi of Kutz surprised a number of learned men who happened to be visiting here. Here I'm quoting from Buber's book. They laughed at him. What a thing to ask. It's not the, is not the whole world full of God's glory? Then he answered his own question. God dwells wherever a person lets God in. But it's with a laughter. Think about the role of, of how he laughs in revealing his truth. Secular thinkers across the ages have also demonstrated some difficulty in finding positive aspects to laughter. In his Republic, Plato famously sought to abolish laughter from his ideal state, claiming that laughter was an irrational and unstable human behavior, which negated self-control. Laughter, Plato thought, had no place in a rational society. Plato was either playing a rather elaborate philosophical prank or he would simply faint at the decorum, or more accurately, lack thereof, in parliaments today. Thomas Hobbes, 1588 to 1679, thank you, Craig, for pushing me to get my dates right. Thomas Hobbes, 1588 to 1679, the great English political philosopher, was also dismissive of laughter. Hobbes felt that laughter was a product of man's selfishness and reflected a cowardly desire to ridicule others. Other writers, Jewish and otherwise, have found great importance in laughter. In 1900, the, great, the French philosopher Henry Bergson wrote his, wrote his laughter, an essay on the meaning of the comic. Bergson felt that we laugh at society's inconsistencies and paradoxically strange habits. Such laughter allows us to live with and perhaps even correct our quirks. In 1905, since Sigmund Freud published a book dedicated to analyzing jokes and their relationship to our consciousness, Freud argued that history's most successful leaders, Moses in particular, yes, thank you, Freud, had a sense of humor, although I don't know what he's referring to with Moses. I'd have to look back at that. <laughs> Moshe does not seem like a great comic. <laughs> this trend affected more specifically Jewish thought, too. In 1905, Rabbi Pinchas Kohn of the Hildesheimer Seminary, uh, also published a book entitled Rabbinic Humor from Ancient to Modern Times. Cohn argued that a good sense of humor and the ability to laugh can be traced to the very first moments of the Jewish tradition. Actually, one of my teachers, Avi Weiss, tells, told me that he won't use humor publicly because it only took a few times of someone feeling excluded or, or shamed through laughter that he would never use humor from the bima. I know plenty of rabbis who like to open their sermons with a joke, and others who um, have moved away from that. And uh, that's worthy of discussion, the role of humor in the drusha. Khalil Gibran, if that's how you pronounce his name, Khalil Gibran, Gibran, an early 20th century Lebanese-American poet, who I'm sure some of you have read, suggests that laughter is necessary for wisdom. Wisdom ceases to be wisdom when it becomes too proud to weep, too grave to laugh, and too selfish to seek other than itself. We see through all of this is that when we laugh, we might be emulating divine activity, as we saw with God laughing, or we might be demonstrating an all too common human tendency to separate acquaintances into two groups, those with whom we feel comfortable to have fun and those who we would just as soon exclude from our frivolity. Indeed, when we return to the beginning of this discussion and contemplate Sarah's laughter upon being told that she, a woman of advanced age, would have a child, we can imagine that her husband Avraham also laughed 
and we can wonder whether either or both of them did so in a joyful manner or in a fashion that simply mocked the unbelievable. As we contemplate this question, we would do well to associate laughter with the totality of wisdom. Beaurier, Beaurier, our topic, is about sensitizing ourselves to the power of separation, of the politics of exclusion, of our, of our human development of separating subject from object. Perhaps when we avoid Borer and Shabbat, we remind ourselves of the dangers presented by separating humanity into in-groups and out-groups. At a minimum, it gives us a new, an opportunity to contemplate several important questions. Who is in and who is out? And what are the implications? How do we engage humor to draw such lines around ethnicity and tribalism? How should we and how should we not? When should we and when should we not draw such lines? Okay, friends, love to hear thoughts and questions and pushback. Um, if I can give a thought and also a comment, um, as far as Moshe being funny, I always thought the point where he said, um, listen, I could give you all the meat in the world and all this and you guys wouldn't be satisfied. To me, that's typical Jewish sarcastic humor. So I think there's a point where Moshe is funny. Um, <laughs> the, and, and actually, you can see more like that. And my friend Michael Weck, W-E-X, wrote a book called Born to Fetch, um, which is just full of Jewish humor. Oops, sorry, I'm going to turn off my... I'm probably echoing. I, I had a speaker. yeah. That's better. That's better. Thank you. Yeah. I, my apologies. Um, the other thing is with In and Out. Just so happened that last night I was listening to a podcast, and it was two guys who at one time did stand-up comedy and both are Jewish, and both were talking about In and Out that way. And and one guy said he says, "Look, I can speak to like go to a synagogue, do stand-up, and all I have to say is like Kogel and Kishka, and everybody is." rolling in the aisles and and i think it's that that little bit of a familiarity where you're laughing with your own and then you mm -hmm. see somebody like jerry steinfeld who plays on something that we can all be in on because he laughs at like every day a little bit you know serious that you can get and mm -hmm. and he he gives us the laughter familiarity which actually brings us all together mm -hmm. so those are my thank comments you. thanks lauren good someone else thank you Uh, I was wondering if I could make a short comment. Please, yes. Yeah, um, two, two things. Um, around the separating, the object and subject, how different it is when people say, I'm depressed, or I'm uh -huh. a depressed person, mm -hmm. versus I'm a person who's experiencing depression. Mm -hmm. like the, minute, yes. the minute you separate from it, then you can start to dissipate it, as opposed to it consumes me. So yes. that's one comment. And then the other comment, the um, kind of the flip of what Lauren was just saying, a Jew to another Jew can make a joke about Jews. That same joke from a non-Jew is very threatening because mm -hmm. you're not in in group, so you don't have the the power or ability to to share it safely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that those are great points. On the first one, starting with self-awareness of what we're feeling and what triggered it and also some degree of separation from it. Yes, and then I think you're exactly right. Just like in black culture, humor can use the N-word in a way that would be inappropriate right. for a white person to use, or yeah. Jews can joke about 
um, things that would clearly be anti-Semitic if a, if, a, if a Gentile were to say it as well. And so there is a double standard. Double standard is the wrong phrase, but you know what I mean. There is yeah, a different standard for... In and out, yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and it's also true around self-deprecation, right? That we can say things self, in a self-deprecating manner that would be very hurtful if someone else said it, right? Yeah. Molly, can I say something? It's yes, Mona. please. Yes, hi. A couple things. First of all, Lauren, um, I love the book Born to Fetch. Thank you for reminding me about it. It was a laugh out loud book. Um, secondly, um, I'm, I'm, I'm relating Borer, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong grammatically or, or the, in terms of the vocabulary, to, to the Hasidic idea of Beirur, descent ah. discernment. Yeah, say more, say more. Yes, so, yes. So I've been learning the Svat Emet and some other, um, some other Hasidic texts with teachers in Israel, and there's a whole thing on Beirur, which is yes. the discernment is to, to sort out what is my response, what do I want my response to be, how do I figure out what my motivation is? How do I sort of, I call it, reach for your best self? In other words, there are choices that you make, but it's a really complex spiritual psychological process um, that I think is really relevant to this. Um, the other point I want to make is um, uh, when Mark was talking about, um, about the separation, I, I think that um, in my work as a couples therapist, I, I, I think about the vulnerability cycle that couples get caught up in. And one of the things that the therapist helps them do is externalize the cycle to separate themselves from it. So like, I, I'm, not, I'm not depressed, I have depression or I experience depression. In this case, it's, um, it's not that my partner and I are caught up in the cycle and we can't see straight, but that we look at it together from the outside, we externalize the cycle. And then as a team, we kind of get meta to it. So I think that, again, is a kind of separation that allows for, actually paradoxically, it allows for ownership of your own responsibility. Yes. Mm. Love that. Thank you. So, um, so well said. And that, 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 that second point, you said everything there is to say. And on the first point, the Bayroar, you're right, that is like in the spiritual, psychic, introspective world, that's like one of the 10 big words, words and concepts of, um, of, of that avoda. So thank you for that. that, that that's really helpful. Someone else? I find it interesting that the great comics of the past 50 or 60 years were all Jewish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what do you make of that? Um, I think there's something inborn in us that we love to laugh, we love to make fun of ourselves and make fun of our circumstances. Well, one, one, it's been argued before directly on our topic, actually, that this, that this is a huge uh, piece of positive American Jewish assimilation in that um, our acceptance into America is precisely our ability to make others laugh. Our role, that, that, that our, 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 the power of making someone else laugh shows the familiarity, shows the affiliation, shows the commonality. Um, the fact that someone like a Jerry Seinfeld and, you know, you know or since he was mentioned or a whole bunch of others um, are, 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 able to sh are able to have such a power uh, demonstrates um, uh, the, how accepted uh, Jews are in America um, in a way that uh, we rarely see from other minority groups. And so we can think about why that is and, um, you know, in what degree that laughter emerges from exclusion or, and emerges from trauma and emerges from pain but also emerges from a deep desire of, for integration. 
I had a question. Yes, I put it put it in the chat, but Great. would you say that laughter is also the quickest way to deflate the ego and recenter ourselves, or uh, also to recenter society because it allows us to reflect in a way? You mentioned, um, sort of mentioned it, like uh, black comedians. There's a certain kind of, uh, or with the Jewish comedians, there's a certain kind of like lingua franca or something that you could use that you would totally understand because you all share that experience. So say there's a black comedian talking about the black experience and a white person listens to it, would they see like, oh, you know, I, I'm privileged in life and now I see this joke about like that community and now hmm, I can probably rethink my position on things. I mean, what do you think mm -hmm. about, about that? Talk? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. That, uh, that, that, that's very well said, AJ, that actually the laughter opens up that new space for potentiality um and able to you know like you said to d deflate the ego recenter ourselves you know and but we have to be open to it um we have to be open we have to be trust the person for example going back to sophie scott's research she said uh, her points that um laughter is very intentional very communicative in that we enter a space deciding if it's a space from the for from the start if it's a space we're willing to laugh or not if you hate trump um, and he makes a joke that you would, that, that, um, that someone else would make and you would laugh at, you won't allow yourself to laugh. If you hate Obama, same, same sort of thing over there. Right. So, um, uh, because you give someone a power, you give someone a connection by, by, by laughing with them or at them. And so the ability of, for jokes, for people to begin to grapple with certain realities, which can be hard for, uh, uh, for them to see um, and, and to grapple with is a, uh, is a great point. And I think the way you framed it around ego, um, is really important. Um, thanks for that, Lauren and Eileen also. Okay, we have uh, one or two more folks here. It's interesting. I, was th I don't know how this connects exactly, but one of the ways traditionally one would sort their laundry on Shabbat if they were to sort their laundry is not with a pile where you pull out all your socks and then you pull out your shirts um, because that would be bow rare. You pull out, you're, right, you're separating different things out and sorting them out. Rather, the, to, to spread the clothes all over the floor. Once they're already kind of all over the place, then you're not picking one from the pile. And so there is kind of this interesting process of how you can engage in, in, in bow rare of separating once things are already kind of um, put into a whole... Uh, into a whole kind of uh, 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 into a, a larger mess, if you will. You break you break the pile. Shmuley, I have another question. I'm, I came in late, so maybe you already addressed yeah. this. But I think about why we shouldn't be doing borer on Shabbos. Um, uh. There is a separate. So there's there's good separation, like projecting the vulnerability cycle, or saying you know I'm mm. not one with depression. But there's also separation of like, I'm not like you, I, I reject, I criticize, I judge. Um, and it seems to me like that's more often what separation involves. Mm -hmm. um, you're saying that more often separation is, is the negative side, not the positive side. Right. Right. Yes. So, so we explored some of the positive side around God's laughter, around human progress right. around Bob Keegan's idea of development. But then, yes, yeah, some of this negative side that we saw a little bit in, in, in the notion of laughter and others around this idea of exclusion or, yeah, or of judgment. And I think that, that, that that's an important concept here. Um, 
and uh, and would you say differentiation in order to cultivate superiority? Yeah, I think differentiation is important, but if you think about it from a sort of Buddhist point of view or ecological point of view, separation is very dangerous, right? I mean, I can do what I want to do. Yes. <laughs> and yes. I don't care what happens over there right. next door or in the next country or across the world. Oh, yes. Oh, right, right. Oh, right, yes. The notion of liberty without responsibility and, um, and the cost that comes there with a separation from the whole. Yeah, that's a great point. Actually, that goes back to our tree idea to a session or two sessions ago. Um, that when you detach yourself, that, that the great sin of the Garden of Eden was the separation of knowledge from, the, from, from life um, right. and the separation of the whole. Um, and um, and the, su the superiority that emerges from such a differentiation of, um, of, of self from the whole. And, you know, we also have touched on this idea of, of um, the discomfort among liberal Jews with, um, with particularism and, and the discomfort among traditional Jews with universalism and how like it is okay to be separate, but a separation that still has a responsibility and a relationship, a differentiation or as Sachs writes about um, dignity of difference. Um, that um, I feel like we don't have a healthy discourse yet around this, around being unique and being a part of a, a responsible collective. Is there an irony to separation when the Sabbath is considered to be separate from the rest of the week? Ah, ah great. Yeah, great. So, right, the whole idea of Havdalah, all of Havdalah is ben kodesh l'chol, like the separation of the holy from the mundane and separation of Jews and Gentiles and separation of, of this, you know, of uh, the six days and, and this day. The whole idea is, and this is a, goes back to Brisker Lumdus, <laughs> the whole idea of separation as being crucial um, uh, to holding up the hierarchy of creation, if you will, the order of the universe. Um, and, and, and I think that um, I disagree with, John, is it John Lennon? Uh, imagine is John Lennon, right? I, 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 sometimes I say things and I realize that they made no sense. So, um, so but I disagree. I like, imagine a world with no religion. Imagine a world that had no like, differences, essentially. You know? And I know there's more to say about what Lennon's vision there was. But difference and separation um, is an important phenomenon of, of a necessary phenomenon is from evolutionary psychology, the need of family units, the need of tribes, um, the need of, of groups and uh, the systemic di dimensions that, that emerge in relationship to group dynamics. Um, it, is, it, is it is a necessity and not going away. Um, that's why I'm against uh, what many propose as a post-nation state universe. Um, I'm in favor of nation states, more responsible nation states, but, um, and in favor of borders in general. I think borders are, are legitimate, um, you know, assuming there's just policies around borders. Um, and, and, so, and so I think that separation is a, is, a, is, a very, is a very healthy thing. So to the right to separate from a former partner um, and to decide what is out, right? If I, I, I know there's a whole trend today in, in sex politics around, um, uh, is it called polyamorous? Is polyamorous mm -hmm. the right word when yes. you reject monogamy? Look, I don't know enough about that to be judgmental. Perhaps I'm too much of a traditionalist here. I think two partners together is enough. I, uh, like, I, I, I may, I, maybe I'm backwards and I'm missing some trend. I haven't read on this, so I shouldn't talk about it. 
But I, 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 I tend to think and I, um, that, um, that, that separating other parties from an intimate realm where there's only two individuals is a positive is a positive thing. And I know there's a trend today to say that having multiple lovers is a, is a positive and, and sexual liberation phenomenon. And if someone has thoughts on that, I'd love to hear your pushback. Um, but I think that deciding what is out makes sense. Like there's kosher and treif, right? Like there are gray areas in life, but there's Shabbos and there's, then there's not Shabbos, right? There's on my plate, there's the desirable food and the undesirable food. And I think like, like there are problems as we've talked about in laughter and politics of exclusion that come with, with issues of separation. Um, but there's also important um, issues of justice that come with who is a citizen and who's not. Who is our nation responsible to? It's responsible to citizens. What is it, what's its responsibility to non-citizens, to, to refugees, to asylum seekers, to people who want to be a citizen but are not? Well, it's, it's a different responsibility. We know that. What is my responsibility to my family and my non-family? What's my responsibility to my spouse and someone who wants to be my spouse but isn't, right? To an employee and, a, and an applicant for a job, right? I think this ought to be obvious, but I think it's very easy to blur boundaries today around... Um, around um, a desire to say all inclusive. For example, here's a, let me give another example. I know this is con controversial and, 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 I, and, and I welcome the pushback. Who is a Jew? Who is a Jew, right? The, a postmodernist says whoever says they're a Jew. If I say I'm a Jew, I'm a Jew, okay? There's a part of me that accepts that. If someone comes over to me and they say they're a Jew, I'm not gonna question them, right? You say you're a Jew, you're a Jew. But then if you come to my shul and you want an aliyah, I'm gonna have to have a policy in my community. Who is a Jew, right? And I think communities have a responsibility to have a thought out policy of who do we define as a Jew? Is it someone with just a Jewish mother? Is it someone with a Jewish mother or father? Is it someone who went through an Orthodox conversion? Is it someone who did any conversion, right? Is it someone who didn't do a conversion but affirms one God and Torah is true, right? So I, I think here we can say like, th there's something legitimate. If someone goes to Jewish free loan and wants a loan and they say they're a Jew, they're gonna say, well, what do you mean by the fact that you're a Jew? Someone wants to move to Israel and they say, I wanna be a citizen of the state and they say, I'm a Jew. And they say, well, our standard here is Hitler's standard. If you had one Jewish grandparent, you're in, right? So that's kind of a, a weird standard. Um, uh, I think that's still the standard, right? Uh, yeah, I think that's still the standard. Um, so in any case, that was a long-winded answer. Let me get some feedback on all that. <laughs> Shmuley, can I comment? Yes, please, Rabbi Biller. Yeah. Um, just the tension between unity and divisions. Mm -hmm. You know, the Torah starting with the letter bet because we live in duality. Mm. And commandments starting with Aleph, Anochi, you know, only God is completely unified. So I, what I think the human experience is that we live in divisions and we yearn for unity. So this Borer on Shabbat is, is a reminder to us of the push-pull between those. That we mm. have to have divisions we kind of yearn for and dream for when there could not be divisions. Mm. Oh, very nice. Very nice. I love that. You know, and looking at modern philosophers um, and various Jewish theologians, we see those who really believe in um, the, that dialectical tensions are not resolved and those who really feel there's a harmony and oneness in the universe. And um, do, do we believe we live in a world of tensions and of, of conflicting opposites? the inevitability of war and conflict? Or do we believe ultimately there's a oneness, there is an, a foundational peace and a harmony that we can, we can reach, we can achieve? And that's gonna lead to very different spiritual outlooks and very different um, philosophical outlooks of what we're working to achieve. Messianism, the Hasidic approach, I mean, to oversimplify, the, the Kabbalistic approach to Messianism is that human nature will fundamentally change. The world as we know it will change. 
right? Whereas a rationalistic view like Maimonides that the world will more or less exist as we will. Okay, Jews will have sovereignty. And okay, um, you know, people will recognize, you know, Torah is true and God is one and things like this. But basically human nature is human nature. What is it we're ultimately yearning for and working for? And to what degree do we hold duality and binaries? And to what degree do we hold paradox? And here, and unity and division, as you said so well. And so coming back to Shabbos, one of the ways I think of it is I think of it as, Sh as Shabbos is about egalitarianism. And the other six days are about hierarchy. The other six days we live in a broken world where there's real hierarchy. There's people, there's the haves and the have nots. There's people um, that, we, that we live in an unredeemed world where um, there's, there's the rich and the poor and everything in between. Um, there's all types of injustice. Um, and, uh, and there's a hierarchy and humans are the pinnacle, right? The, the land, the, the inanimate objects are the bottom and then there's the, the sea creatures and then there's the land animals. And then it's Salem Elohim, the human beings, the pinnacle of all existence in this hierarchy of what creation is all about and the anthropocentric worldview. And then there's Shabbos, the great equalizer. We're all in this together. Don't work the land. Don't work the animal. Don't work your worker. Everything is equal. Pretend the world is perfect. Pretend there's no injustice. Pretend that women are not paid less than men. Pretend that people of a darker skin color are not treated differently than people who are white. Pretend that an animal has just as much right to, to thrive and flourish in this, in this world as, as humans do in order that that perfect vision can um, can help to sustain a different vision in the broken world where we look at the hard realities that we embrace. In this regard, one might say the controversial bracha, Shaloha Sani Isha. I stopped saying Shaloha Sani Isha in, in the delivery room when my daughter was being born. I looked around the delivery room and I looked at the two most important people in my life, my wife and this baby emerging, my daughter. And I was literally davening, I was davening. And I said, I've been saying Shaloha Sani Isha, thanking God I'm not a woman. And I said, uh, I, can't, I can't make this bracha. I can't make this bracha. But the truth is, the other way to read that bracha is that, um, that you're honest. You're honest. Men have privilege and power that women don't have. By saying this, I'm acknowledging, God, like not by your design, but by social, by social, dimension, by social dynamics, women are not treated fairly in this world. By saying, I'm acknowledging my privilege as a man and the responsibility that comes with that. As opposed to saying, actually, I'm not, um, I'm gender blind, I'm race, I'm race blind, right? I just treat everyone fairly with no bias. Acknowledging the bias, owning the, the injustices, and taking responsibility for those. And so, Rabbi Biller, I think that's exactly right. The unity and the division, we live in these dualities, um, but this yearning for unity. And I think that um, in various forms of monotheism, we see um, this notion of what exactly do we mean by unity or oneness of God? What do we mean by the oneness of God? That God is that there's one God and not another. That God is everything and not not something else. Um, that there is unity within God. Um, so, uh, what is it we're yearning for? Someone else, please. If there is someone else. Maybe you're talking and you're on mute, or maybe we can pause for the day here. I, I, I really love this idea of um, unity as the goal and, and Shabbos maybe being the day where we put aside our mm. metaphysical 
or sorry, a metaphorical Borer and, and we're, we're all one and unified. But I'm having a hard time reconciling that with, with most of Judaism, frankly, um, which is all about separation. I mean, even we use the word separation to, to mean holy. Um, everything in Judaism could be boiled down to separation, to, to is it kosher, is it treif, is it Jewish, is it not Jewish, is it, um, is it our God or, or is it, you know, worshiping false gods? Um, I'm, I'm, I have a very hard time finding the um, ideal of unity real true global unity and maybe that is because i'm a modern you know <laughs> universalist type jew but i i'm mm -hmm. i have a hard time finding that in judaism frankly especially traditional traditional judaism amazing amazing so brett thank you for that and, uh, and i'm going to throw it back to you and everyone else uh, but i'm just i just want to elevate the, and amplify the importance of your question here of what does it look like because i think you're right i think you're exactly right there are forms of jewish mysticism which would um uh, would advocate certain practices of Devekis or the like of just this clinging and really being completely immersed within a unity consciousness. But I think that any read of Judaism of the Talmud or of, of our tradition is um, constantly about separation and dialectics. And so how do we hold a deeper consciousness of unity while living in the practical Judaism of separation? And how does holding both of those strengthen each other? to engage in the hourly process of practical Jewish separation with the um, elevated uh, unity consciousness? Let me throw that question back to you or the group. Can I say something? Yes, please. So, so um, oh, I gotta turn this off. Sorry. So, so the separation is to keep us holy. I understand that. But, but mm. I see the whole concept of tikkun olam, um, which unfortunately we, we often don't do, but, but that's our way of the universalism. That's our way of um, spreading the chesed and the tikkunim to the rest of the world um, while we still stay separate and holy as the Jewish person. So, you know, also very much a part of Modern Judaism is like Torah v'der Eretz. Yeah. So it's, okay. it's, it's that nice, yep. um, mm. hard to get, but that, that nice balance between okay. the two. Okay. Excellent. Okay, excellent. Excellent. Good. So I want to say two things there. First of all, Lauren, thank you for re reminding me that because you're exactly right. In, in the five most common definitions of Kedusha, the five most common definitions of holiness, one of those five is separation. Separation. And generally, like you're looking at the Ramban, Nachmanides, um, asceticism. I will separate myself from sex. I will separate myself from, from gluttony. I will separate myself from the pleasures of this world. Um, and that act of separation, that act of asceticism, whether it's brief or about moderation or whatever the case is, that is what we call Kedusha. My limiting myself. Um, my separating. So too, the idea, why is HaKadosh Baruch Hu Kadosh? Because God is separate. So that, um, that is based on a theology of God's separateness from our reality on a phenomenological plane, on the plane of, of our experience and consciousness, and on a plane of earthly existence. God is, is reached through transcendence, not imminence. God is out there beyond. 
Okay, that's the first thing that you raised. The second thing is, I'm gonna take for granted that we as modern people, I assume everyone here I'm here considers themselves modern, or <laughs> whatever that means to be a modern person, but um, that we think inclusion is a good thing, right? Let's be inclusive. It's almost taken for, oh, we're a, in the fact, the reform movement talks about radical inclusivity, right? This is like the, the banner of the reform movement, radical inclusivity. You want to be included, come to the reform movement. We include everyone. And so that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. And in fact, re religious groups um, historically have been, um, as we've talked about, places of exclusion. Who's in and who's out and, and who's, who's the co-fair? Who's the, what's, what's a co-fair? Co-fair is a uh, heretic. Uh, a heretic and who's a believer and uh, and who is pious and who's a sinner. And uh, and this is very uh, tragic and, um, and traumatic. And yet I wanna ask a different question. Who should we rightfully exclude? Now, who should we right, rightfully exclude from our community? Who could come to a VBM program that it would be my responsibility as, as, um, as the manager of the program to say, I'm sorry, you're not welcome here. Is it if someone says something racist if someone threatens violence, is it appropriate for me to exclude them? What if someone preaches Jesus Christ as their savior? Is that, would that be, or they seem to be proselytizing? Would that be a, a good grounds to exclude? What if someone believes women are inferior to men? What is it, what is, what is welcome in the open marketplace of ideas? And what is not welcome to the extent that someone should exclude? What if someone calls for genocide against the Palestinian people or condones violence towards um, asylum seekers? What if on the opposite extreme, someone sells, says we should kill Donald Trump, right? right. What, what are ideas that we think would be, um, be valid appro um, approaches to be shared and what would be invalid? So here the question is also around separation of um, just as we'll make legitimate choices as who's, who's a citizen is, or not, who is a Jew, who's not, who's my spouse and who is not, who's my, on my staff team, who's an employee and who's not. So too, we'd say, who is welcome in my religious space and who is not, right? If it's an Orthodox synagogue and, and, and those who identify as male are going to sit on one side and those who identify as females on the other side, of course, trans people should be welcomed on the side they identify as. What if someone says, you know what, I reject your binary or I reject, and they say, I'm going to sit where I please, right? Um, should their notion of fairness be included in that space or is that, is that um, not welcomed in, in such a space? So I, I threw a lot of things out there. Let's, we've only got five minutes left. Let's see if there's one or two more people. If you're speaking, you're on mute. Don't worry if you've shared already. Well, the username iPhone has a question. Oh, great. How do we, I, we can't hear them. Their, their mic is on. Okay. They're raising their hand. Whoever's on the iPhone, we want to hear you. But we can't hear you. Maybe you can type. Sorry, everyone. Seems to be a difficulty there. Hmm. Okay. So person on the iPhone, if you don't type or we don't start to hear you, we'll assume you cannot speak. Is there anyone else or should we wrap up here? Yeah, uh, just a last comment. Yes, please. Um, the theme that I see is running through everything you've been teaching is every week the, the malacha has a plus and a negative. Ah. And 
it seems the purpose on Shabbat is to have us reflect on that. Yes. Uh, I wish I could think of some of the examples, but I know every week I write down, oh, this is a Shabbat to look at, you know, the plus of this and the, oh, I know there was one, but it was similar. It was, um, um, maybe it was uh, threshing where you're taking out the good and saying this is good and this is not good. And uh, the, there's room for that and there's room for, you know, the unity of things. I mean, this is a pretty similar thing. Amazing, amazing. You know, it's, each of us can ask ourselves the question, when I am in my free time, where does my mind automatically go? And I'll share a personal one for me. Um, I, I hold fear in my life. I hold a lot of fear in my life. Um, fear around the societal realm and what's happening in society. Fear of my children's well-being. Fear of my my own ability to achieve what I want to achieve. And so my mind, when I'm just laying in bed or, um, or in the shower or have some free time, so to speak, uh, I, I, I'll, uh, maybe when, when my kids move out, I'll get some free time. But it goes to fear. It goes to fear. I, I, I move to a place of, of fear. And maybe you move to a place of sadness. Maybe you move to um, uh, a place of wonder, um, whatever it is. But I think that you're right, Rabbi Biller, that part of what I'm trying to suggest here is that that a meditation on the malachot is a chance for us in Shabbos, in our free time, to, to reflect not on where our mind naturally goes, but to reflect on the micro level of how we're living, how we're thinking, how we're walking in the world, how we're living, on a level of being, on a level of thinking, on a level of doing. So behavioral, cognitive, affective, spiritual, how are we moving through the world? Because naturally, unless we're in therapy or in a deep conversation with a friend or life partner, we won't necessarily go to that place. And so the, the malachot cannot just be, oh, here's things I do and don't do, but each one of them a chance to reflect, how am I in this world? And what are the positives and negatives to the way I'm dealing with you? So friends, I wish you a great week of Borer, <laughs> a, great, uh, a great week of sorting and selecting and separating the, the holy from the mundane, the good from the evil, um, the, the healthy from the unhealthy, the helpful from the unhelpful, and uh, in an upcoming Shabbos where we can continue to purify and strengthen such notions. Have a wonderful day. Yes, Shkoch. Shkoch. Shkoch to you.